Well, Colossians chapter 2, if you've got a Bible this morning, and uh, grab one real quick. Grab you a cup of coffee if you're at home. Grab a uh, donut. We brought donuts here. You can't have one because you're at home, so we'll eat those uh, accordingly as soon as we finish the sermon. The, the message is entitled this morning, Comfort and Caution in the Midst of Conflict. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 to 8 uh, as we begin this morning. The Bible says, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established, excuse me, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And so as we begin this portion of Scripture this morning, I want to thank you again for joining us. I hope it's an encouragement. Maybe you watch this later from the live stream. Uh, I pray it's a blessing to you. We're going to begin this morning with the first point. Paul had a conflict for the Colossian believers. He actually says in verse 1, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you. As he's, as he's writing this epistle to these believers, he kind of just says, man, I wish you know what kind of turmoil and, and difficulty and and, and, and war, really, I'm having spiritually on your behalf, not only for you, but for them at Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. That word conflict literally means contention. It means fight. And remember, Paul is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God from prison, <laughs> from prison. So Paul could not be with those Colossian believers like he wanted to be. He wanted to be with them in the flesh and so he's conflicted. And so how does Paul contend? How does he fight this spiritual battle that he is fighting to be with those that he loves and, and desires to be with? Well, well, he used what's available to him. Paul used the pen and the papyrus. He, he used the technology available to him. He, he prayed for those believers. He wrote and encouraged under the Holy Spirit's uh, guidance to those believers. You see, Paul had been a victim of Roman government overreach, which got him put under house arrest for quite some time with, with an ever-changing trial date that continually got pushed back and modified, and, and he was probably limited to a, a small group of people that could actually visit him, probably 10 or fewer. Maybe that's conjecture, but I think you get the point. And Paul's conflict was that his love for Colossae and his love for all the churches and his present suffering is, is what prevented him from being with them. And I think we can see some parallels in our culture and in our day of unconstitutional restrictions and limitations on church gatherings that are preventing us from seeing each other in the face and in the flesh. Well, I would, I would agree with the Apostle Paul. It's great conflict. It's great conflict. You know, this is something that Paul was used to. As a matter of fact, a good portion of the epistles were written 
from prison, his imprisonment. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 29 to 30, he says, For unto you is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And, and, and Paul, again, writing to another church, the Philippians, just kind of telling them that you're going to suffer for the Lord's sake like I'm suffering. You're going to have the same conflict. And I would have you particularly pay attention to First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16, because the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul, for us as New Testament Christians, is a pattern. He is an example for us. He says in verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And so as we look at Paul's life and Paul's conflict for the Colossians, we can, in some small manner, relate to the conflict that he's experiencing, to be with the ones that he loves, to impart spiritual gifts and wisdom from the Word of God, and yet he used what was available in his hand. And, uh, you know, for us in the 21st century, I'll leave it for you and your personal study to figure out just how much of a pattern Paul really is for you as a New Testament Christian. Uh, but he is writing this from prison, by the way. And so, and so Paul identified with the sufferings of Christ. He was conflicted, but, but secondly, he desired for the Colossian believers to be comforted. Now, I find that very interesting because he's in prison. And instead of being worried about his present condition, he, he is more concerned about the comfort of the believers he's writing to. In verse 2, it says this, that their hearts might be comforted and being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and so Paul's desire for the, the Colossian believers was, was that they would be comforted. And as we look at this text, there's two specific ways that, that, that Paul felt like they could gain comfort in their present situation. The first thing is love. And, and so here's a key principle. Listen, love knits our hearts together and it gives us comfort. I mean, that's what, that's what brotherly love and the body of Christ does. Our hearts are knit together in love. I had a couple of guys call this week, two different guys, two different occasions. You know, as the pastor, you always feel like it's your job to, to kind of, you know, shepherd and, and you know, be the example and call everybody. And I had two guys that called me out of the blue this week and said, how are you doing? <laughs> man, I love you. I'm praying for you. I know you got a lot on your plate. And uh, man, that just did so much for my heart um, because I know those guys love me and, 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 and they're concerned about me and they're concerned about the church. And, and man, it just is a wonderful thing. It gives you comfort when you feel love and, and when love is expressed to you. And, and so Paul says, look, you know, Love is what knits our hearts together, and it gives us comfort. That word knit literally means unified or joined together, united, if you will. The first mention of that word in the Bible is in Judges chapter 20 and verse 11. And in that first mention, the Bible says, So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, knit together as one man. And, and that's what being knit together in love really looks like. We're unified as one man, as one body. 
When we love God as Community Fellowship Baptist Church and we love each other, it knits our hearts together. I had a great-grandmother, I've mentioned this great-grandmother a few times in, in different sermons, but, but going to her house as a, as a child, uh, she had a big basket of yarn, and, and, and you know all different colors, all different types of yarn, and, and our family would go visit my great-grandmother, and, and sometimes she would, she would be sitting in her recliner, and she would be working on knitting, <laughs> you know, knitting like a quilt with this yarn. And almost, quite honestly, almost like mindlessly. I mean, she knew exactly what she was doing, but she's having a conversation with our family. She's sitting there enjoying the time together, but she's knitting with these knitting needles, and she's just going to town, and she has all these different types of thread and colors of thread, and she's knitting, and they're all coming together to make this beautiful finished product, this tapestry, this, this, this quilt woven with all these different types of, of yarn and colors and and man, when she, in, the, in the right hands, man, she was able to knit that thing together into something beautiful and perfect. And you know, I look at my great-grandmother, and I learn a lot about God and His Word and how we're to be knit together as a local church, as a local assembly of believers. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, that type of love is, is available 1 Samuel 18 and verse 1, the Bible says, It came to pass, and it's talking about David and Jonathan. It came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. I mean, David and Jonathan, and listen, don't let the modern heretics pervert what the Bible is not saying in this particular verse. The Bible says that they loved one another. It wasn't anything inappropriate. It wasn't anything perverted, as some would say. Their souls literally were knit together in love. They were as one soul. And God has called us to that type of love in Christianity. God has called us to exercise that type of love with each other. And when we do, it gives us comfort. And in these days, man, listen, Cody prayed. We, we, don't, we don't know what's going on. Every day is a different story. Every day is a different circumstance. In the midst of conflict, we need comfort. And one of the ways that happens is through the love of the body of Christ. So let me just encourage you that are watching. Maybe you're streaming this and you don't have a church home or church family. Listen, there's a church here that wants to love you. And the Lord. There's a church here that wants to love God and love you and make you uh, understand truly the love of Christ in your life. And I think through that, if you'll give us a chance, I think you'll understand that God will give you the comfort that you're looking for that only Christ can provide. He does that through his body. The second key that we understand from this passage is not only does love knit our hearts together and give us comfort, but the second key is that the scriptures themselves knit our hearts together, and give us comfort. Because that verse goes on to say that, that after our hearts are knit together in love, we're, we're knit together unto all the riches of the full assurance and of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But what Paul is pointing back to is the Scriptures. 
And you need a church family that loves you, and you need to be a part of a church family where you can love other people, but you also need the scriptures to knit your hearts together and to give you comfort. And so in that verse, very quickly, because we don't have time to spend four hours on this, but, but there are three mysteries that are mentioned. The mystery of God is mentioned, and, and this mystery, if you compare scripture with scripture, you're going to land in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. It's probably not on the screen, but I am going to read it. The Bible says, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared unto his servant servants, the prophets. And if you compare Scripture with Scripture, you're going to land in Revelation 11 and verse 15. That seventh angel is going to sound, and when he sounds, the Bible says that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so the mystery of God has everything to do with Christ's millennial reign. It has everything to do with Christ becoming the King of kings and Lord of lords over all of creation, over all of the earth. That's what the mystery of God is. The second mystery mentioned is the mystery of the Father. And you say, what in the world is that? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, there's some, some things we could study. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, the, Jesus did say, I and my Father are one. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a mystery called the mystery of godliness, where God became man. God was manifest in the flesh. You say, well, that was Jesus. That's exactly right. It was Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says that that child that was born and that son that was given is called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Oh, and he's also called the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That is a mystery. It is the mystery of the Father in Christ and Christ in the Father. And then thirdly, we see the mystery of Christ. And, And that phrase is actually found two other times, Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 4. That mystery is the Jew and the Gentile together in one body, the church, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have the references in your notes. Here's the point. When you have the scriptures, you can know God. (laughs) When you have the scriptures, you can understand the things of God. And when you understand the things of God, it brings comfort into your heart and into your life because you have a final authority that does not change when, when the political climate changes, God's word does not change. When culture changes, God's word does not change. It is absolutely 100% truth, and it's never changing. And so here's the key. In Jesus Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid, and therefore there's treasure to be found. There's treasure to be found in God's Word because in Christ, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. And I want to just preach on this point for just a second. Listen, just because you have a Bible and you agree with what I just said doesn't mean you have comfort from the Scriptures. You actually have to get in those, those, those words themselves, yourself. You have to search those things out yourself. You have to study to show yourself approved unto God. 
You hear the Bible says in Proverbs 25 and verse 2 that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. You know, the Bible tells us that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. There's hidden wisdom in God's Word. You say, well, well, if God really wanted me to, to get it, He would just write it plainly so I can understand it. That's not the way it works. It's spiritual wisdom. It's hidden wisdom. A, a lost man, a natural man, can't understand the things of God. They're foolishness unto Him. And even if we're saved, we have work to do. We have to study. We have to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. And so it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Solomon writing to his, his son, he says, My son, if thou will receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thy heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding, verse 4 is really important, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Let me just say this. Listen, a lot of people want to know what the Bible says. A lot of people would say, man, I sure wish I understood what the Bible says. I wish I could know it like other people know it. Well, you can. (laughs) But, But the key is the way in which you search for God's wisdom, you have to seek it as silver. Now, listen, if I told our church family, that I had hidden bags of silver around our campus. Listen, people would be up here scouring every square inch of our building, every square inch of the grass outside, the, the, the playground out back, the, the, the covered awning. They would be sca- sca- just scouring every square inch to find silver. God's, God says, if you want to get the knowledge of God's Word, the comfort from the Scriptures... Well, you do have to seek it. You have to seek it as silver. You have to search for it as for hidden treasures. Because it is hid in Christ. You won't get the treasures of Christ without seeking and searching for them. And by default, you won't get the comfort of the Scriptures without seeking and searching for them. Listen, just there are many a Christian that are saved and they know they'll have a home in heaven and they know man they can God can take them back to the point that they received the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no question, there's no doubt. But they have no comfort. They have no comfort because they don't have a body that they're a part of, so they're missing the love component. But they're also missing the comfort of the scriptures because the truth is they really don't seek them. The Bible tells us in Romans 15 and verse 4, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort comes from love and our hearts being knit together in love. Comfort comes from the Scriptures. You know, again, man, life is really wacky right now in our country and in our state, and I don't understand it, 
And man, I'll be honest, it frustrates me sometimes and it gets the best of my flesh. But you know, at the end of the day, I can have comfort because I know what this book says. I know what Christ says. The riches of his hidden treasures can be searched out. And I have something that's far more valuable and far greater than anything available in this life. His word. So true comfort comes from the love of the brethren and it comes from a love of the scriptures. And the question is, do you have comfort? (laughs) I mean, that was Paul's desire for the Colossians. He had conflict for them and he wanted them to be comforted and he pointed them to the the two things that he knew could deliver that. And then number three, Paul begins to caution these Colossian believers. Verse four, I love verse four, it says this, and this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. And so as you read through those first three verses, you're kind of like, okay, I get, I get what he's saying here. He's got conflict. He wants them to be comforted. There's some mysteries that they should understand. When they understand the scriptures, they're going to have a heart-knit connection with the word of God. That's going to comfort them. And then verse 4, and this I say, and the this that he said was verses 1 to 3. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. That's interesting. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm saying all that to say this. I say all that to say this. Experience the love of Christ in a body of believers. Experience the love of the scriptures and the comfort you can have. I say all that to say, you better have that else someone's going to beguile you. Someone's going to deceive you. Someone is going to corrupt your mind. And Paul's desire was that those Colossian believers, he couldn't get there in the flesh. So he wrote them an epistle and said, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know the love of God. I want you to know the comfort of the scriptures. And I'm saying all this so that you don't get beguiled with enticing words of man's wisdom. That word beguile means to deceive. And you find the cross reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Paul says, writing to the Corinthian believers, he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Eve was beguiled by the serpent in the Garden of Eden through his subtlety. Genesis 3 and verse 1 gives us that account. The Bible says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not not eat of every tree of the garden. How did that subtle serpent beguile Eve? He did it with words. He did it with enticing words. He caused Eve to question God's word. Listen, when you don't have the comfort of the scriptures and the assurance, the full assurance, I think Colossians says, when you don't have the full assurance of the scriptures, you're open to be beguiled. And so the serpent shows up. He makes her think that what God's word has said is not sufficient. He makes her think that God is holding something back from her. Listen, uh, time out. (laughs) I do this in church all the time. I'm going to do it on live stream. Time out. Do you know how simple it was in the garden? <laughs> I mean, listen, God had, had, had this perfect environment. 
And, and he put Adam and Eve in this garden, and, and he, they had work to do, and, and they had a commission to fulfill, and they were naked, so that was a bonus. And, and listen, all the, I mean, it was just simple. And they had one commandment, hey, you know, be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and, and then they had one warning, one law, if you will, eat of every tree you want except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How simple is that? Doesn't get any simpler than that. It's simple. And yet, through subtlety and through enticing words, Eve's mind was corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. He beguiled her through words. Paul's concern was that a man or any man would beguile the Colossian believers with enticing words. You know, so, so what we do in church is we generally open a Bible and we read the Scriptures and we preach from the Bible expositionally and we compare Scripture with Scripture. How do we communicate God's words? We, we use words to communicate them. How does the devil and his ministers, the false priests and false prophets and, and, and ministers of, of, of the devil, how do they communicate enticing words? They do it through words. And at the end of the day, you've got to figure out, man, words are really important. Where are the right words? Where are the right words? I mean, listen, it's easy to be enticed and separated from the simplicity that's in Christ. Can I just tell you? Can I just be honest? I'm going to anyways. Listen, the greatest fear for this pastor is that for the past seven weeks, I have no clue what kind of enticing words the devil has brought into your heart and life. And I hope you've been faithful to, to the live stream, and I hope you've been faithful to the devotion on Wednesday night, but I'm telling you, there is a devil that Monday through Saturday wants to beguile your mind with enticing words and to subtly corrupt your mind from the simplicity that's in Christ. And it breaks my heart. It causes great if I can quote a, a famous apostle, conflict. You see, the battle, and here's a key in your notes, look, the battle is always over words. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Paul says, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of whose wisdom? Man's wisdom. My preaching and my speech was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's conflict was, and his caution was, there are words that are enticing that will corrupt you. And we've heard for seven weeks, inside churches, outside churches, we have heard every bit of man's wisdom. We've heard the best a lost man can do on all avenues, politically, religiously. And Paul's speech and preaching wasn't with enticing words of man's wisdom. Because man's wisdom is the best a lost man can do on a good day. His preaching and his teaching was in demonstration and power of the Spirit of God. 
his preaching and teaching was the Word of God. And at some point, that has to become our authority. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, you know, you know Paul was not a polished preacher. I, I don't know what you think about the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, we envision things in our mind about maybe what he looked like when he preached and, and what his ministry looked like, and, and maybe our mind goes to famous, powerful preachers that we've known through history. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, uh, they, the Corinthian church, had an impression of Paul, and it was not favorable. It, it says this, for his letters say they, in other words, these are, these are the Corinthians referring to Paul, his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. That word contemptible means despised. If you heard Paul preach, it'd probably get on your nerves. <laughs> Wouldn't be pleasing. It's not full of enticing words of man's wisdom. And yet it's the power of God and the demonstration of the Spirit. Listen, the battle's over words. I hope you can find them. You can find them. You need to ask the question, where are God's words today? And you need to cling to them. (laughs) Because there's a whole multitude of voices communicating words that are seeking to entice and to corrupt your mind. That caution that Paul gave those Colossian believers continues in verse 8. It's kind of a two-part caution. Verse 8, he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And so verse 8 begins with a very strong word, beware. You could also say that that's made up of two words, be aware. It's like sounding an alarm. It's, it's wanting his listener to focus in and pay attention. Beware. And as you study that word through the Bible, after that word, there's always a warning of danger. Matthew 7 and verse 15, beware of false prophets. Matthew 10, verse 17, beware of men. Matthew 16, beware of the leaven, the doctrine of the Pharisees. Mark chapter 12, beware of the scribes. Beware of covetousness. Beware of dogs, evil workers, and of the concision, Philippians chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, beware lest you fall. So, so that word carries with it significant weight and warning. And Paul says, beware lest any man spoil you. Oh, you know, when we think of spoiling, we think about, you know, those bananas that we bought from the grocery store last week that have been sitting on the kitchen counter. And, and you know, in the course of like a week, they've gone from slightly green to yellow to now well, you can't see these chairs, but the color of these chairs, they're just dark brown, and they're spoiled, they're ruined. That's how we use the word in our terminology, but the Bible uses that word a little differently. Actually, the word means to take your stuff. To spoil you means to take your stuff, and and the first mention of that word is in Genesis 34, verses 27 to 29. It says, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city. Because they had defiled their sister, and and they took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and which was in the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they spoiled even all that was in the house. So this caution goes on not only to, to warn you about words, but Paul says beware because, listen, some 
A man is going to try to spoil you, to take your stuff, to take what's valuable to, do, to you, take your riches, take your treasure. I'll say this. There's an enemy that hates you so much and hates the gospel ministry so much and hates Jesus so much that if he can't get your soul because you're saved, he can make sure he gets your stuff. And what I mean by that is he can spoil your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. He can spoil from you all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are hid in Christ. You better beware. There's four things in that passage that God warns us that will spoil us when we leave a biblical authority, when we leave the comfort of the Scriptures. And, and the, the local New Testament church in the 21st century, sadly, is inf- infiltrated with these four things. Number one, men will use philosophy to spoil you. Philosophy defined is just the study of knowledge. Philosophy asks the question, what can I know? And it attempts to answer that question with the best a lost man can do. But at the end of the day, because philosophy is about everything and by everyone, there is no absolute authority in the world of philosophy. And so men like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Confucius, Nietzsche. By the way, Nietzsche is the guy that said famously, God is dead. He died in the year 1900, and for the last millennia, he has realized that God most certainly is not. Men like Karl Marx, and we could go on and on, philosophy is about everything, what we can know, but ultimately comes to the conclusion of nothing. And yet, God's wisdom and God's revelation in Jesus Christ, God's word, tells you what you can know. As a matter of fact, it tells you, you can dig out all the hid treasures of the wisdom and knowledge that are hid in Christ. You can know everything you want to know about God and his word, and you can know it because it's absolute truth. It can be known. It can be trusted. By the way, philosophy is not, the verse says, after Christ. It's not after Christ. Probably be a bad major to major in in college, just my two cents. All the philosophy majors just turned off the live stream. Okay, four things that will spoil you. Number one, philosophy. Number two, vain deceit. And again, that word vain deceit just really means to beguile, to deceive. Can I just tell you that men will deceive with words, and sometimes they'll even use God's words. Second Corinthians chapter 4 talked about, Paul says, when he, when he talked about his ministry, he says in verse 2, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul says there are some that handle God's word deceitfully. That'll ruin you. Man, listen, you better be aware of how someone handles God's word. And if they're not preaching it expositionally, if they're not comparing Scripture with Scripture, if they're not letting the Holy Spirit define the terms, well, they're handling it deceitfully, and it'll spoil you. Number three, tradition of men. Tradition of men. Mark chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. God gives us a little bit of insight into that, that, that phrase, tradition of men. He says this, Jesus said, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines of the commandments of men, 
For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. I I just want to tell you, the tradition of men doesn't mean that you don't have worship because in this passage they have worship. It doesn't mean that they don't have commandments. It's just that the commandments are the traditions of men instead of God's word. There's vain worship. It's really hard when, a, you know, I can't wait till our church family gets back so I can get about 20 amens right there. But it is possible to have church and have vain worship. You know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus went to the woman at the well in Samaria, you know, it started off with a conversation about water. It ended up in a conversation about spirituality, spiritual things. And Jesus had to drop the hammer on this lady and said in John 4 and verse 22, Ye worship, ye know not what. Just because there is worship doesn't mean it's biblical worship. There can be such a thing as vain worship. When it's not based on the authority of Scripture, it is vain worship. Tradition will will have a representation of worship. It'll even teach doctrine. It'll hold tradition as the commandments of God. And they will ultimately reject a biblical authority. And sadly, we see that in churches in the 21st century. And then lastly, the fourth thing that will ruin you is the rudiments of the world. Men will use the rudiments of the world to, to spoil you. Well, that word rudiment just means elementary. In other words, the first in a series of things. So, th- so think elementary school. You know, uh, when I was growing up, it was kindergarten through like sixth grade was elementary school, and, and then it was middle school, and then it was high school. So elementary school would be considered rudimentary education. Do they even use that word anymore? I don't know. Do they use that word? The Bible uses it, so they should use it, you know? So, so, so Colossians tells us just a little bit further down in, in chapter 2 that, that elemental things in the world, well, we're dead to those things. Colossians 2 and verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks, but man, listen, legalism has no place in the body of Christ, and that's the point. And so that, 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 that concern that Paul had for the Colossian believers, it, 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 it certainly applies to 21st century Christians. Guys, listen, we have to be aware that enticing words are out there. We have to be aware that philosophy and vain deceit and, 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 and these things can spoil us. Man, it would be a bad day at the judgment seat of Christ to have left your first love and lose the reward that the Lord wants to give you at the judgment seat of Christ because you adopted a philosophy or a ministry philosophy that's not according to the Word of God. Don't do it, church. The last thing is this, Paul's charge to the Colossians. We've got to hurry. Verses 5 to 7. So he says this, verse 5, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. I I love this because it gives me comfort. Paul says, I'm not with you, but I am with you in spirit. For seven weeks, (laughs) that's how this pastor has felt. Man, I'm not with you, 
but I am present with you in the Spirit. Paul said that to the Corinthian believers. He said that to the Thessalonian believers. There's also a great picture of Christ in that verse because Christ is not with us in the flesh and His glorified body, but He is with us in His Spirit. His Spirit is in us, and it seals us. And if you can read those words and, 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 and just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ beholding us, desiring to be with us, joying, beholding our order and the steadfastness of our faith. Two things that he says there. Number one, he says to the Colossians, I behold your order. Word was on the street of how orderly the Colossian church was. That just means they had a biblical authority. They had a pastor that preached the truth, and they had members that followed. They maintained order in that church. God's church is to be orderly. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. First Corinthians 11, he talks about setting things in order at the Corinthian church. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he sent Titus to Crete and left him there to set in order the things that were wanting. God's church ought to be orderly. Man, God help us to be a church that when the Lord looks down, he beholds our order. And then secondly, Paul beheld the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. And that just means their firmness, their, 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 their foundation. They were stable in their faith. In other words, they weren't wavering in their faith. And again, seven weeks, man, of, of just chaos in our culture, in our life, in our city. No church, no corporate meetings. Church, listen, is your faith still steadfast? Are you still orderly as it relates to God and His Word? Are you living your life as a disciple of Christ? Steadfastness is found all the way through the Bible as it relates to the church. But we don't have time for all the references, so let me get you to verse 6. Verse 6 says this, his last, his last point here. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And I love that last little part there. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And so it begs the question, how do you receive Christ, Jesus, the Lord? How do you receive him? Well, do you receive him by water baptism? Hardly. Do you receive him by irresistible grace? Don't kid yourself. Do you receive him by church membership? The answer would be no. What, well, do you receive Christ by taking the Eucharist, by the ceremonious eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood? Absolutely not. The Bible is very clear that you receive Jesus Christ by faith alone. By faith alone. Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, for by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so Paul says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Well, how did you receive him? You received him by faith, or you haven't received him at all. And if you've received him by faith, then you're to walk in him, how? By faith. Your walk is to be a walk of faith. And so here's the key in your notes as we wind it down. Look, the method of receiving Christ is the manner of our walk with him and in him, and it's by faith. 
Bible tells us in Romans 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When God gives us his word and we hear it and we put our faith and trust in it and we believe it, that's what walking by faith is. That's how you got saved. You heard the gospel according to the scriptures. And now you're to walk in faith with him. And there's a key progression that that he gives us right there in that verse that says, rooted and built up, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And there's some really cool things you can look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 concerning that progression. We're, we're to be abounding in the work of the Lord. All right, I need another hour, but I know you're not going to live stream that long, so I'm going to wind it down here. The reality is, everybody's chuckling in the room that's here, so anyways. You know, the reality is that Paul had a conflict for those believers. And although he couldn't be with them presently, he could write, he could encourage, he could admonish, he could warn, man, don't let somebody corrupt your mind through the simplicity that's in Christ. Don't, don't let enticing words of man's wisdom move you away from a biblical authority. Be aware of philosophy and vain deceit and the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world because all those things will destroy your standing at the judgment seat of Christ. We have been faced with nothing but man's wisdom. We've been bombarded with it for the last seven weeks. Personally, I'm sick of it. It's time that we get back to God's word. And we have a biblical authority in our life, and we let God be true and every man a liar. And so, church, I have the same conflict in a very small way to see you in the flesh. And and I'm trusting in the Lord that's going to happen very, very soon. But until then... Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Take the caution and and the, the, the warnings that God has given us today from Colossians and make sure that you are experiencing not only the comfort that the body of Christ offers, but also the comfort of the scriptures. And so we'll pray in closing and then we'll dismiss. Father, we love you. Thank you so much again for your word. And I pray as we consider these things, God, help us to be a church. When you look down from your throne, seated on the right hand of God, that you would behold our order and our steadfastness in the faith. It's a great time of conflict. It's a great time of confusion. There's a lot of enticing words of man's wisdom being communicated. I think the phrase is, God has given us common sense. I think I've heard that more this week than any. Uh, Lord, you've actually given us your scriptures. And, and, you know, the reality is man's wisdom at best is common sense and your wisdom is hidden wisdom in Christ. And so help us to be people of faith that love you, that walk with you by faith and faith alone. Nothing added. And we're going to just trust you with the outcome because we know that you'll get the glory for it in that case. God, we love you. Thank you again for those live streaming. Uh, I pray that you bless them. Help them have a great week in the Lord. We ask it all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.